Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter number 8, the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, As we begin this morning, we're going to read verses 12 through 36. I'm going to uh, do something that I very seldom ever do in that I make, I'm going to comment kind of along the way so that we understand uh, the context as it's being read. Uh, I'm also, before we begin reading, I want to go back and touch on the first 11 verses so that we uh, have a picture in our mind's eye and we get the continuity of, <clears throat> of the word as it's being given here as Jesus is teaching and speaking uh, so that we can visualize where he is and to whom he is, uh, is conversing and teaching. And so we're continuing in our, our theme of being disciples this morning. <clears throat> And so we look here and see that in the first verses of John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple and he's talk and he's teaching. He goes to the Mount of Olives. We find him then teaching in the temple. Now, it's going to make reference, and you'll see this whenever we read down to this part of the text, but he, he specifically states that he's teaching in the treasury in the temple. <clears throat> so when you think of the temple, most people don't really have a good vision of what the temple of Herod looked like at that particular time. And so when you, when you, I want you to kind of, kind of capture the, the vision or a mental image of this this morning. So when you look at the court of, you hear terms like the court of the Gentiles. And so the temple is a bigger and, uh, and more bold show of what the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was a tent structure. It had an outer courtyard and then within it, it had a tent structure that, and that was open air. It had a, st- a tent structure that was the holy place and the holy of holies that was separated by a veil. That's contained within the temple in Jerusalem. But outside of that, you also have uh, layers of other elements of it. And so you see Jesus driving out the money changers. When he's driving out the money changers, he is actually at that point in the court of the Gentiles. And then in between that, so when you first walk up to the temple, if you walk up to either side or the front of the temple, the first thing that you're going to walk through when you come in is the court of the Gentiles. That's where the money changers would have been. That's where they would have been selling animals for sacrifice, which all were a violation of what God intended whenever he set up the structure and the sacrificial system by Moses. Then when you walked through that, you came into a greater open area that led to the veil into the, the courtyard and the place of sacrifice where the altar was and the laver was. And you had a big open area that was known or called the court of the women. And then to either side of that, on each side, there were a couple of chambers on either side. And depending upon which diagram you see and what scholar you're reading after, one or two of those rooms, either one on one side or one on each side of those rooms was known as a treasury. So the treasury would have things in it like the the utensils and things that were used that were not currently in use. It would have the the money that had to be paid uh, in atonement or when new new births and things of that, different things that were commanded to where uh, a shekel or whatever was commanded to be made to pay. That was the storehouse uh, for those things. And so Jesus is in the treasury teaching. And as he's in the treasury teaching, and they're adjacent and into the court of the women, you can imagine that the, the crowd was either in that room with him or possibly overflowing out into the court of women. When you walk through the veil into where the sacrifice was made, only the priest or the head of household with a family watching their sacrifice atonement, uh, only the head of the household was able to enter beyond that veil. Uh, the, the family would have stood out in the court of the women and watched in to watch the animal for atonement sacrificed uh, by the head of the household. And so he would cut the throat, the priest would catch the blood, then the priest would take over, take it to the altar, and so on and so forth. And so, just as, as a, a, again, just as a mental picture, we're walking in, we go through the court of the Gentiles, where anybody and everybody in town can be. Then we come into the court of the women, and then to the right or left, before you got to the veil to enter into the outer court of the temple, or of, of the place of sacrifice and worship, uh, would have been the treasury. So Jesus is here teaching. As he's teaching, there are a multitude of people that are able to be in that part and segment of the temple. 
it's a it's not greatly restricted so they can be people from all walks of life there he's teaching to them <clears throat> and as he's teaching some Pharisees come there are Pharisees that are there that are listening to him teach there are the common people that are there they're listening to him teach that are there for feasts and for different things in normal business and then another group of Pharisees brings this woman in that they've caught in the act of adultery and so they bring this adulterous woman in. It's interesting that they only brought her and they didn't bring the man whenever they caught them in the act. It makes you kind of wonder who it was they were protecting. But the Bible doesn't allude to that. So we, they bring her in and they use her to try to trip Jesus up. And so they bring her in and they say to Jesus, the law says... You're here in the temple teaching about the law. The law says that if this, this woman should be stoned, what do you say? To which Jesus does not answer them. His answer to them is to bend down and to begin to write in the sand. Now, there are a lot of people that preach sermons about what he wrote in the sand. Uh, and when they do that, they're adding to the word of God because the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote in the sand. And so for any preacher to stand up and to say, this is what Jesus wrote, is erroneous because the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. We have no idea what he wrote. He could have, he could have drawn a picture of anything that came to his mind's eye, uh, but he bent down and he began to write in the sand. So as he writes in the sand, they continue to press the issue. To which point he finally, after for effect's sake, looks up and says to them, whoever among you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't, to answer the question would have unraveled what he was trying to accomplish and played into their hand. So he asks, answers as he often does their question with a question. A question that they will not answer because if they do answer it validates him. And so they all slump off and walk away. Doesn't mean that the crowd dispersed. It doesn't mean that all the Pharisees left. It means that the ones that brought her in are the ones who leave and go away. And so with that background, when she says to him in verse 11, and he says, where are your accusers? Does anybody accuse you? No, Lord, they're all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he shows great compassion. He could have brought judgment, but he brings instead compassion but it's interesting to note that his words to her are not just go and live your life. They're go and sin no more. You know, we live in a time where it seems like churches all around us are popping up that are come and hear a motivational speech and feel good about yourself. Hear a little pep talk about Jesus, but just continue to live the way you want to all week long. Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. And what we see from that is this, is that the impact of Jesus Christ on your life should be changed life. Amen. It should not be a life that just simply adds him to what you're already doing. It should be a radical departure from what we were. It should be him growing and developing us into what he would choose for us to be. Now, so they're still here in the temple. They're still in the treasury. He now fixes his attention back on the crowd that he was teaching to to begin with whenever they interrupted him by bringing this woman into the scene in verse number 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them saying, remember the background, I am the light of the world. He just said to her, go and sin no more. Now he says to the crowd, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In other words, if you just go away the way you came in, then you're going to go back to your sin. But just like I told this woman, go and sin no more, I am the light of the world. And if you'll live and walk after me, then I will light your path so that you don't have to go back and sin again. And then in verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said unto him, thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I came or whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Now, Jesus is going to talk about making some judgments in just a few verses. So he's not saying here 
that, that he's not making a judgment. He's saying, this is not the time for me as the judge to pass sentence upon everyone in this moment. You're passing sentence. You're usurping God's authority to pass judgment on someone or to pass sentence upon someone. That's not, it's not time for me to do that yet. I'm not here in this moment uh, to judge. But if I did, verse 16, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And so in their law, you had to have two that were complete agreement. You see that in the life of Jesus. You see it at the, the, the illegal trials of Jesus whenever he's taken into custody and he's tried. It was illegal for him to be tried at night. It was illegal for him to, for the high priest to speak during the trial, though he was presiding over it. When they could not get an, two men to agree in their accusation, the Caiaphas finally had enough and lost his composure, and he questioned. That was illegal. It rendered the trial uh, illegal uh, and compounded their legal problem. Uh, but he was determined to crucify the Lord. Uh, and it's interesting to note, too, that there is a fourfold witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is true. John the Baptist, the Word of God, uh, and the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God, and, and the words of the Father and the words of Jesus himself. And so uh, he is doubly proven to be true. Uh, and here he says, uh, I am one that beareth witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. So he leaves it at just two uh, in this particular passage. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? And Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye seek me, and ye shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. And so Jesus here is not sugarcoating this. He's not worried about hurting their feelings. He's not worried about who's going to be offended. He's not worried about being politically correct. He's not, being, he's not worried about getting canceled by the culture. He's, he's just speaking truth. And he says to them, I'm going to follow the will of my father. And you're going to follow the will of your father. And then in verse 22, then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he saith, whither I go, you cannot come. And the principle that we see here in this statement from the Jews is something that we see very prevalent in the lives of people today. Because what the Jews are demonstrating to us here, Jesus has just said, I am the light of the world. Where I'm going, you can't go. You can't go without me. And their reaction is, is he going to kill himself? So what are they demonstrating? They're demonstrating, I believe, this. That they are hearing and interpreting everything that Jesus says according to their own preconceived ideas. They're not hearing the truth. They are only hearing the truth as, as it is worked into and wrapped around what they want it to be. They are not hearing the full uh, unabridged truth. They are trying to manipulate the truth. They are controlled by their own desires and prejudices, and they are not willing to hear it outside of the context of what appeals to their own flesh and desires. You see a lot of churches today and what they practice in worship are only taking the truth and twisting and manipulating it to blend it with the world so that they feel good about themselves and what they're doing. And listen, there ought to be a distinct difference between the things of God and the things of this world. Amen. Jesus continues when they ask if he'll kill himself in verse 23. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. And this is a particularly strong statement. Now remember, they're standing in the temple. You are from below, below where I am right now. You are from your father's house. I am from above. I am from heaven. You are from hell. So those that would say, 
Jesus was so loved that, uh, the, and they divorced his judgment and his truth and his righteousness uh, and, and all of the other parts of his, of his character. Uh, you cannot divorce one from the other. Jesus is all of these things. Amen. It is a disingenuous and a misrepresented Jesus that is just so filled with love that he's okay with whatever we want to do in our lives as long as we add him to the mix. He is speaking very bluntly here. You are from down below and I am from up above. Some pretty harsh words. Some people are afraid that, man, Pastor, you didn't speak so plainly. Jesus wouldn't have spoken that way. Well, I beg your pardon, but he spoke that way many times. And he wasn't obnoxious and ugly. He was just very blunt and direct. And so... He didn't want to be misunderstood. Verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. Listen, without the light of the world, without me, you're going to die in your sins. You're going to go back to where your father brought you from, the, the God of this world. Ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge of you. See, before he said, I didn't come to judge. I have many things to say and to judge of you. He's making judgments about them because our actions and attitudes reveal who our true master is. And so he says, I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of his father, of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. In other words, once you've crucified me, you'll become to understand. You'll, you're rejecting me right now, but once I'm crucified, you'll begin to understand. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things which please him. Would to God that we could be a people that could say that. As he spake these words, many believed on him. So now you've got the crowd divided. Now you've got not just Pharisees and Gentiles and Jews and people gathered together listening but you have some that have now put their faith and trust in him as they have witnessed his compassion on this woman in adultery, if they have seen him rebuke the Pharisees, if they have listened to him, explained to him how he's going to become the payment and the atonement for their sins, standing with the altar in plain view in the backdrop across the courtyard. Uh, and he is now uh, proclaiming to them this truth. I will be lifted up and then you'll understand. And some of them said, I understand now and I believe that you're the one and I put my faith and trust in you and they received him. From this moment on, the verse is speaking not to the whole crowd, but specifically to the crowd that just received him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. If you continue, not if you come here and accept you can do that, be a child of God, be saved. But if you would be a disciple, you must continue in his word. And ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Amen. Who's made free? Those that know the truth. Who knows the truth? Those that continue in his word. Amen. The Christian that just comes and accepts Christ and goes about their worldly life never gets freed truly from the bondage of their sin. They're freed from the penalty of their sin, but they're not freed from the bondage of their sin because they never dwell in the word of God and learn enough to grow and to be developed and to have their spiritual walk cultivated that they can understand its principles and be set free. And ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They answered him. We be, this is the Pharisees answering back now. We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? 
Now, the absurdity of that statement cannot go unnoted. We've never been any man's servant. For 430 years, they were slaves in Egypt. All throughout the book of Judges, they are continually, repetitively falling into sin and being brought into bondage of the neighboring nations as a judgment from God. For 70 years, they were in bondage to Babylon. At this particular point in time, as they stand in the temple and utter these words, they're under the bondage of the, of the empire of Rome. But yet, in their mind, they've never been in bondage to any man. They cannot see and they do not want to understand the truth. They only want to embrace what they, and maintain what they have. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. In other words, you can say that you're not a servant to anyone all you want to. But the reality of how you live your life and the attitude with which you conduct yourself reveals your true master. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall set you free, ye shall be free indeed. And I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, disciples indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again for the time together. Spirit of God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and that you would manifest the truths of the word of God to our lives. Help us to learn it. Help us to live it. Help us to love it this morning. In Jesus' name and amen. So as we've established the context here this morning, and Jesus again in the temple teaching these people, he stated to them plainly, I am the light of the world in verse number 12. Then the Pharisees are condemned in verse 23. He speaks to them again harshly, then reveals himself to the crowd in verses 25 through 29 uh, as he lays out the truth of who he is. And many of them receive him. And you see this commonly whenever Jesus speaks, that it'll come, it'll frequently, the New Testament and the Gospels will state that some of them trusted him and some of them went their way. So some will believe, some will reject. I want you to notice this. I think that this is an important truth for us to, to understand this morning. The response to the truth was a revelation of the heart condition of the hearer. Jesus did not preach two separate messages. He spoke one truth. Some rejected, some received it. It was preached the same words, to the same assembly, with the same tone, with the same authority, with the same moving of God's spirit amongst them. And some were hardened and rejected, and some were softened and accepted Christ as their savior. What's the difference? The difference isn't in the message. The difference is in the heart condition of the hearer. And my condition and the condition of my heart is always revealed by my response to the truth of God's word. If I'm drifting away from God, what once convicted me will now make me angry. If I don't want to hear truth, I'll make ways to excuse it and to dismiss it so that I don't have to feel convicted about my life. When I hear things that I don't necessarily want to hear, that aren't comfortable for me to hear, as brothers and sisters in Christ and pastors and teachers uh, are exhorting me biblically, my response becomes not conviction, but you're judging me. What's our attitude? Our attitude reveals our master. Our service reveals our master. Our heart condition is revealed by our response to the truth. Jesus then instructs his new converts. And he says to them, I am the truth and the truth will make you free. Our service reveals our master. And then he says to them, continuing in the truth will reveal or prove your sincerity. A lot of people can say all kinds of things. I can say I love Jesus all day long, but it's proven by my actions and by my attitude. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you can sign up to be a disciple, but your sincerity is going to be proven. And it will be proven by who you serve. Then the question becomes to us this. 
What then is the key to becoming a disciple indeed? If I really want to be a disciple of Christ and not just a believer in Christ, if I want to be a disciple that's not just following along until it gets challenging or difficult, if I want to be a disciple that God is a part of my life and uses my life to impact the lives, to change and to encourage and to inspire the lives of others, then how, pastor, is that possible? And he says here, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's the essence right there. I don't mean to be overly simplistic this morning, but most of the time, the things that are life-changing in the Word of God are not really that complex. They're pretty simple. It's just that our pride and our desires and our prejudices get in the way. They complicate them, but the truth is not complicated. The word indeed means simply truly. In other words, that then are you my disciples indeed. In other words, then are you truly my disciples. So what do we have to do to be that disciple? Jesus, again, speaking to his disciples, and we see here he says to them that ye are my disciples indeed if you're continuing in my word. I want you to look forward, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here because I preached especially from one of these passages recently, just in the last week or two. But I want you to just put this in its, in its context in the flow of Jesus developing his disciples as he moves. In the upper room, on the night of his arrest, at what we would call typically the Last Supper, uh, and there at that last Passover when Jesus is crucified, this is the day before his crucifixion, he's speaking still in the upper chamber to his disciples in John chapter number 14 and verse number 15, and he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Now remember what he's already said. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Here he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, your sincerity will be proven by whom you serve and by why you serve. Then notice in chapter 15, as they are now leaving the upper chamber and they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane just a moment or maybe an hour or two before his arrest. And he says to them in chapter 15 and verse 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, continue ye in my love. So there's a progression here. When Jesus is developing us, that if I, uh, if I want to be his disciple indeed, I must continue in his word. If I continue in his word, I will experience his love and desire to continue in that. And if I continue in his love, and I will be keeping his commandments. I learn, I live, I love. And when we look and we understand true discipleship and we see what God is trying to do, and again in our text here in John chapter 8 and verse number 31, if ye continue in my word, we see that discipleship equals deeds, but deeds do not necessarily equal discipleship. We can do deeds, but we can't, uh, but that doesn't mean that we're a disciple. But you can't be a disciple and not do the things that God wants you to do. So we, we say in here, Pastor, well, let me put it in a different way. It's the same principle, which most of the time I've found that we struggle to make these cross applications. In general, people today just struggle with this, no matter where they are, no matter what education level or walk of life they are. Let me put it in a different way. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can do without loving, but you can't love without doing. And when we kind of make that application to the Christian life, I cannot be, I can do the deeds that God wants me to do for the wrong motive and with a bad spirit and not be his disciple, but I cannot be his disciple and not obey his commands. It's not possible. The emphasis and the, way, the reason that he words it this way is because the emphasis is not on the doing of deeds. The emphasis is on the relationship. It's not about religion. It's not about church. It's about relationship with Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The emphasis with Jesus is always on relationship and motive more than on the deed. He says, as a son, I do always those things which please the Father. 
And then he continues on and says <clears throat> that I want then continue in my word. And you go back and you look in our text. He, he says to them in verse 29, For I do always those things which please him. And then in verse 31, If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What's he laying out here? He's saying, listen, I'm the Son of God. And if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a child of God. And if, I want, if I'm truly God's child, then a child longs to please their father. And as we long to please our father, we begin to continue in the word of God because that's what the father desires. A child who tries to please their father because they fear him or because they want to avoid punishment or, or, because, they, uh, or, or because of some other reason becomes an angry, bitter, rebellious child. But a son who wants to do the things that will please his father as an expression of his love has a close, personal, loving relationship with the father. The motive is to please my father. Jesus' motive is to please the father. Jesus wants your motive and my motive to be to please the Father, not to check a checklist, not to alleviate ourselves of guilt, but to live a life for the purpose of expressing our love to Christ. Emphasis on relationship. So, Pastor, how do I continue in His Word? How do I go about doing that? Well, we're to live a life by faith, not by sight. We're to walk in faith. So in order for me to do that, I have to understand, and this is why right off the bat, as soon as he leads them to himself here, he says, continue in my word, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The faith life must be lived in the Bible, in the word of God. And so by continuing in the word, I am learning about the Son. John chapter number 1. In verse number one, Jesus starts off this gospel. And this gospel, again, it's written to the masses. The Matthew was written to the Jews. Mark was written uh, to the Romans. And Luke was written to the Greeks. John was written to the masses to prove the deity of Christ. Matthew presents him to the Jews as their king. Mark presents him to the Romans as a servant. That's why the symbol of the book of Mark is an ox. And in, in Matthew, it's a lion. In, uh, in Luke, it's man because the Greeks worshipped man and the body of man and that Luke was a physician. Uh, and so they're all about logic and reason. Uh, and so it presents Jesus as man. And then John presents him as deity. The symbol's an eagle soaring above uh, the creation. It is to present him as the deity, as God in the flesh. And he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life of the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Did we not just see that on display in John chapter 8? He's preaching the truth and those that reject it cannot see it. He came and was light, and they didn't comprehend who he was. In verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. If there's any doubt about who this is. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What did he display to the woman that was caught in adultery? Grace. What did he preach to the crowd at large? Truth. What did they comprehend? Those that were hardened comprehended it not that he was light. They returned and remained in their darkness. Those that looked at him and said, I believe that you're the son of God, received light and trusted him and immediately continue in my word. Continue in my word. Learn of me. So when we look here and we see what Jesus in essence is saying to them and we see it again manifested in his walk from the upper room to the garden uh, in, in John chapter 15 uh, in verse number 4 when he says abide in me and I in you this the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine no more can ye except ye abide in me. In other words what Jesus is saying is continue in me. Do you want to be a disciple indeed? 
Continue in Christ. Continue in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, there are three elements of this. Number one, we see it's that we have an obligation, if we would be his true disciple, to learn the word. Why? If I don't learn the word, I don't know what anything that God expects of me. If I don't learn the word, I don't know anything about the character and the nature of God. If I don't learn the word, I have no light to show me my path. I must be committed, if I would be a disciple indeed, to learn the word of God. Why? Because Jesus is the word. And we'll not reread the verses that we just read, but those verses, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and, chapter four, and verse number 14, tell us clearly that Jesus Christ is the word of God. Learn the word. Learn Jesus. Then he exemplifies for us who he is through the word. Now, we could spend literally months, if not years, examining the character and the nature of Jesus. But I want you to see just a few things that Jesus has made clear to us. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, down through verse number 30, he says, and this is what, essentially this is what he's saying to this crowd. They're under the bondage and the weight of their sin. They are, uh, they are uh, dealing with all of the weight of an occupying government. They have everything in their life to make them miserable and to make their lives difficult. And he says to them, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Not the yoke of sin, not the burden of sin. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me. Learn the word. Why? For I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Listen my friends. There is nothing as suffocating as living life under the burden of your sin. And if you're here this morning and you're trusting in being baptized or church attendance or the manifestation of some spiritual gift which is non-existent in the New Testament church, uh, it's a fallacy uh, that's been concocted in the 1800s to mislead and misguide people. Uh, when, you, uh, when you look and you understand the truth and the merit of the scripture and you come to realize who and what Jesus Christ is, he says here clearly, uh, if, if you've placed your faith and trust in that, or in baptism, or in church attendance, or doing this deed, or being better, uh, and your good outweighing your bad, you will die and spend an eternity in hell because you have trusted in your own works and abilities and not the gift of God that Jesus provided on the cross. That's his message to these people. That's a heavy burden. The burden of trying to pay for your own sin debt is a crushing burden. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Because my yoke has paid for your sin debt. I've borne the burden. I'm carrying the weight. I'm leading the way. I'm in the yoke. I'm in life with you. You're not out there on your own. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus makes a manifestation of himself here when he says, Four primary things that we see in these few verses that I want to just comment on under the guise of we must learn the word. Why? Because Jesus is the word. These are by no means is this everything that Jesus is. This is just a starting point. But what we saw in that, pas in that passage, Jesus is compassionate. Why? Because he went to them and he said, come unto me. If you're heavy, your, your burden's heavy, come unto me. Jesus is here, this, this woman that's been taken in adultery. Go and sin no more. He could have condemned her right there. He would have been well within the rights of the law to do so. But he didn't. He had compassion. Jesus is compassionate. Say, so, well, what about whenever, Pastor, whenever Jesus does bring judgment? What about when he does chastise and judge for sin? That is only a manifestation of his compassion to restore us into fellowship. And great long suffering has been exhausted before it ever comes to that point. The second thing that we see is that Jesus is gentle. He says, get in the yoke with me. Let me do the heavy lifting. Let me do the hard work. Let me bear your burden. Let me be the burden bearer. But he's humble. He's meek and lowly. He says, I'm your burden bearer. I'll carry the load. 
And what we see when he tells us to learn the word is that he's saying to us, I am the Messiah. I have paid. I'm paying your sin debt. I am God in the flesh. Learn of me. And you'll learn that I love you. You'll learn that I've paid the debt. You'll learn of my compassion. You'll learn that I'm gentle. You'll learn that I'm humble. You'll learn that I want to carry the load for you. Once we learn the word, we must then secondly live the word. And if I would be a disciple of Jesus, I must live the word. James put it this way in chapter 1 and verse 22 of his epistle. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. If all we ever do is hear the word and never live the word, then we cannot be his disciple. Too many people want to just absorb and hear and never live and put into practice what they learn. What are we talking about here? I'm just simply saying this morning to put into use those things which you've learned. You've learned of him. Now put into practice the things that you learn. See, it's not complicated. It's really pretty simple. It's doable. And the beauty of the Christian life is that it's not so hard to attain. It's not so difficult to understand that you look at it and say, I don't even understand what he's talking about. I can't do that. No, it's really simple. Learn of me. Learn the word and then live it. Learn and then live. You want to be a disciple? Learn and live. Learn it, live it. Put it into practice. Put into use that which is learned. The second thought about this is that the more that we do, the more of him we see. The more of, the more that we do of that which we've learned, the more of him we see. I want you to notice in John chapter 14, again, back in the upper room at the Last Supper, speaking to his disciples who he's preparing uh, to go through and to witness his crucifixion. He says to them in verse number 15, if ye love me, keep my commandments. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and I will love him. Notice this last statement. And will manifest myself to him. In other words, if I learn of him, and as I live what I learn, Jesus reveals or manifests himself to us in a greater way. That person that trusts Jesus as their Savior, but they never read their Bible, they never attend church, they never grow, they never learn, they never pray. I'm not saying that they're not on their way to heaven. If they became a child of God, truly, if they repented of their sin, the Bible tells us that in all likelihood, they did not sincerely trust him. But that's not for us to judge. Uh, but assuming that they did, that person that never learns the word and goes their way is not a disciple. A disciple learns and lives. And the more that I live, the more Jesus reveals himself to me, the more I know him, the more I know him, the more I love him. Why? Because he's right here as a part of my life. The old saying that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but if that absence is too long, it makes it grow forgetful. Too many people live the Christian life going so long in between encounters with Jesus and his word that they grow forgetful of him rather than longing for him. Live the word because the more that you do, the more of him you'll see. And the more of him you see, the more of him you'll want. And it's true as you watch people in their Christian lives as they come in if they give their heart to Christ and they learn about Christ and they get excited about church and they begin to grow in their walk with God and it's obvious that they're growing because they're changing things in their daily lives uh, and you see that developing and then they stagnate and then they stay away from God and then they stop reading and they slow down their praying and then they begin to fall away and before you know it, they're gone and now instead of being convicted, I'm being judged and instead of, uh, instead of changing my life, I'm making excuses why it's okay for me to do the things that I once uh, felt convicted about and it's all justified in my mind. What 
what's happening here? I'm seeing less of him. And the less I see of him and the less I do, the less I desire. But the more I learn and the more I see, the more I love. No, notice his words again. Continue in my word. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Continue in my love. So what do we see this morning? First, I must, if I would be a true disciple, learn the word. Second, if I would learn the word, I then must live the word. And ultimately, thirdly, this morning, it brings me to the proposition that I must love the word. Every Christian should love what we're doing right now. Every, if, listen, if you're a Christian that does not love to assemble with your church family, there's something wrong in your spiritual life. If you're a Christian that does not love the word of God, there's something that's wrong in your spiritual life. If you're a Christian that does not love the preaching of the word of God, there's something wrong with your spiritual life. Why? Because if, if you don't love the church, why? Because Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it. It is his bride. Hey, listen, Brother Joey, I love you. But if I have to choose between you and my bride, you're in trouble. She's my bride. The church is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot love Jesus and not love his bride. And I cannot love his bride and reject the elements of his bride that I don't like or that I think have failed me. I must accept him for who he is. Love him for who he is. John chapter 10 and verse number 10. Uh, Jesus said, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus came not to just set you free from your sin, but to give you an abundant life that is free from the bondage and the terrorism of your sin, weighing on your conscience. And if I can't love Jesus because I don't have to deal with that, I need to love him because of who he is. He is the one that forgave me and set me free. Love him for who he is. Amen. Not only should I love him for who he is, but it is an, ungra an incredibly ungrateful soul that does not love him for what he's done. Love him for what he's done. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 24. He said, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. If I can't look at a broken Savior, beaten beyond human recognition, head in all likelihood swollen to the size of a basketball, most doctors would attest, skin and flesh ripped from his back so violently and so completely that bone would have been exposed, heaving, struggling to push up with feet that have nails driven through them and pulling on arms that have spikes through them to simply gasp, a, gasp for a breath of air on the cross. The cross and, the, and victims of the cross died from suffocation. It was a cruel and horrible death. And my sin put him there. Amen. And if I cannot understand that Jesus Christ bloodied and beaten and abandoned by his followers and becoming my sin and enduring the wrath of Almighty God and his anger against the sin that made all of this have to happen. All of that wrath poured out on Jesus. If I can't love him for what he's done, I'll never love him. Love the word. Love the preaching of the word of God. Love the living of the word of God. Love the exercising of God's word in my life. Why? Because it tells me who Jesus is and it shares to me and for me what Jesus has done. And I also should love him for all that he is doing and all that he will do. 1 Peter again, chapter number 1 and verse number 8. 
whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why? Because of what Jesus is doing and what he will do. What's he doing, pastor? Let not your heart be troubled. Be, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. I should love him this morning. And if I would be a disciple of Jesus Christ, truly, indeed, I must learn the word. And I must live the word. And I must love the word. If I don't, and, and by the way, if I do learn it, I'll want to live it. And as I live it, I will not be able to help but to love him. If I try to love without understanding, I'm just loving an ideal. I'm loving, I'm forcing myself to love something that I hope will be someday. That's not what he wants. He wants a relationship with you. He wants and he says to us, come unto me. Come unto me. You've got a problem. Your burden is heavy. Your sin weight is strong. You feel guilty. You feel oppressed. You don't know, have any answers. You feel like your life, you're drowning in the waves of this world. Come unto me. Learn of me. Just come and learn. And when you come and learn, you're going to naturally begin to want to do what I'm asking you to do. And as you do, and as you experience me, you will automatically come to love me. We love him because he first loved us. Are you content this morning to be lost and in your sin and on your way to hell? I would hope not. He died so that you don't have to. But as a child of God, who is not a disciple, are you content to live in the past and to wallow in defeat? Or do you desire to be a true disciple, a disciple indeed? It's a simple formula. Live, learn, live, and love. Learn the word, live the word, love the word. The disciples are loving the word of God. And as a result, they come to love the God of the word. Do you love him this morning? Oh, pastor, yes, I love him. I'm not talking about words. Remember what he said in chapter 8. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Broader application whoever you're serving is the one that you love. And if you're serving your sin, you love yourself and you love the God of, your, of this world, which is Satan. But if you love him, serve him.